Welcome to Pitch It To Me Podcast, a show about the subjective past, present, and potential future of flesh and blood design. Get ready for an in-your-face, mile-a-minute explosion of action-packed podcast. Today's episode will be about the aggro archetype. In red pitch, Clark defines aggro and its nuances. On yellow pitch, Fuzzy will repeatedly ask a question, is this hero aggro? And on blue pitch, Joel will talk about aggro's role in a TCG meta. You can find us across all socials, such as TikTok and Instagram, at Pitch It To Me Podcast. I'm Clark. I'm Fuzzy. And I'm Joel. Happy New Year! Happy New, Happy New Year! Year. <laughs> New Year's is a time for us to look back and reflect as well as prepare for the future. Isn't that right, guys? Yes. No. Oh. <laughs> New Year's is an arbitrary date in the calendar that doesn't matter. Well, I think it's a Real. good arbitrary time to do reflection. And You're goddamn <laughs> right it is. <laughs> So we're really happy with like how the podcast has been doing the last six months. We started back in like July, August, right? Mm-hmm. And we thought it might be cute to do a couple like New Year's resolutions for where we want the show to go in 2024. Yeah. I think first of all, like it would be really cool if we did some more video content. Like we haven't really made like YouTube videos, but that's something that I would love to do with you guys in the future. Like produce some extra content to go on YouTube, um, deck techs or other things. Yeah, like I, I, there's a specific video idea that I had in mind um, for a while now, uh, like a sort of like a panel discussion where we just engage with more of the community members of Fab, like in SoCal, uh, and just like talk more about like things that aren't in the current Metascape, like you know, like sticking to uh, our core philosophies for the podcast, um, and just have like a more collaborative effort with like the people that we talk to every day about Flesh and Blood. Yeah. I definitely have the goal of just trying to make it to a year. It's, you know, speaking of arbitrariness, it's like, when are we a real podcast? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was it when we first started making episodes? Was it when we were able to keep it up for a couple months? Is it at one year, two year? Is it at a certain listener count? I'm not really sure, but I feel like one year is nice because I really get to say that I put my all into this project mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. I was able to let it I was able to sustain it for such a long time. Yeah. And that seems like a really wonderful, interesting thing to be able to sort of tuck away in my little personal resume. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. A whole year of podcasting, like it's taking up a good proportion of my life already. And mm-hmm. to do that for a whole year definitely would feel like an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. It, it already feels like an accomplishment, honestly. I'm really happy and proud of the show. Yeah. And I'm excited to keep doing it. And when we hit that like 50, 52 episode mark, like It'll feel really, really powerful. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of things that we've already done this year, um, we launched our Discord. And that's such an amazing feeling to see people that I've never heard of before join our Discord and talk about our show. It's been so, so nice. Yeah. The fact, I'm like, oh, I don't know who you are. I don't <laughs> know your real life name. It's crazy. It's nice. <laughs> it means that other people are listening to us outside of the like friends and family category. That has also made me feel like I made it, right? We're a real podcast. Yeah. People I don't know listen to us. I think like going into the next year, the next steps, if we like want to make the podcast more formal and more professional and a bigger project, would be like potentially getting our own website, pitchertomepodcast.com. Yeah. <laughs> 
tell your friends or like a Patreon page so we could potentially turn this like little hobby that we're spending a bunch of time on into a show that could potentially make us a couple dollars on the side or potentially we could use that money from Patreon to work directly with other artists and creators, collaborators to produce like an even cooler, more well-rounded project. Yeah. Yeah, like I, that's what I've also really enjoyed about the Discord is seeing everyone's like different ideas like and having one place to like uh just work with them. You know, I think we've already gotten like a, a few ideas like for our next episodes, but thinking about how we can, you know, pour more of our energy in a different way and maybe make some of these like ideas that people have into like real life artwork or real life cards that we would see exist like in flesh and blood necessarily but just seeing like what we can come up with as a community would be really cool to to watch out for too i think that's what like what people really look forward to as a content creator and i i'm personally excited about that in addition to you know possibly making like it an income off of this but you know so overall thank you guys for listening and we're excited for the next year and see what, seeing where it takes us yeah <clears throat> now for some context we recorded this episode, uh, how long ago? Like all, over a month ago, a month and a half ago. Actually, yeah. Actually almost two months now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. by yeah. the time it actually comes out, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're recording this intro at like the tail end of 2023. You guys are listening to it in 2024. We recorded this way back in like November. Yeah, aggro is something that's relatively a universal concept for this game. It's not going anywhere. The concepts will all hold for a while, but it's really important for us to talk about. So we recorded at a time where we would have a nice cushion of backlog, so we don't always have to record an episode every week, right? Mm-hmm. And then it ended up turning out that like we didn't want to publish it right away, so it's kind of been sitting ready to go for a while now, and we're ready to deliver it to you now. Yeah, if you're screaming about why aren't they talking about this card or that hero, that this is why. <laughs> it might not exist yet at the time that we recorded most of the episode. <laughs> yeah. So, with that being said, uh, take it away, Pass Clark. So, for Red Pitch today, we are going to start off doing, I think what we're going to do every single time we kind of talk about these big archetype ideas, which is defining them. Mm -hmm. So, I wanted to take our Red Pitch and define what is aggro in Flesh and Blood. So, aggro is probably like the most easily understood archetype. Like when we did control, we were talking a lot about how flesh and blood control looks super, super different. It looks very similar here in flesh and blood. Really, it's just trying to deal as much damage every single hand as conceivably possible. Mm -hmm. That's all we're really about. We're not blocking. Not in this neighborhood. Yeah, this is the blocking for bitches class. Four card, five card hands. You arsenal... Not to, like, save something up or, like, play around things. No, you are arsenaling because you just want to have that card on another turn later. You just want more power, big numbers, higher ceilings. That's all aggro is really about. So when I think about aggro heroes, I don't think about their ability to deal 12 damage in a turn. I think of those instances where they deal 20 damage, sometimes even 30 damage. Mm-hmm. I feel like 13 is kind of like the base rate. Like the average flesh and blood hero is probably seeking to get, is probably thinking, how can I deal more than 13 points, whether that's defensive or offensive? And control heroes are usually getting those points by like blocking or disrupting. Aggro heroes are getting those points with synergies in their card pool or 
cheating the game rules by having above rate cards that command weird penalties that they don't actually really care about, things like that. Yeah. Or just playing one giant mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I also think that aggro is all about getting and keeping tempo. So tempo is this idea in flesh and blood. Really, it's an idea in a lot of card games, but it's extra important in flesh and blood. So tempo is the idea of, oh man, how, how would I go about describing tempo? Do you want me to give it a shot? Sure. So I'd say tempo is when you are winning, <laughs> very closely. <laughs> if you are winning, you have tempo. If you are putting more pressure on your opponent, so you're forcing them to block, meaning they don't have enough uh, cards in hand in order to put back a threat, you have tempo. In other trading card games, if you have a bigger board state, which means your opponent has to respond to you instead of putting on more pressure, you have tempo, right? Um, and there are a lot of other ways you can think of tempo as well, but like in Flesh and Blood, when you have a higher life total, you often have tempo because you can sacrifice that life in order to return more damage, which means a lot more for your opponent, like the fact that they have less life to spare, right? They've, you have, they have fewer options than you yeah. do. So I always feel like I have tempo when the opponent is blocking a lot and then not attacking me. Mm -hmm. If I'm not getting attacked back after my turn, I feel like I have tempo. And aggro really wants that because then you are keeping multiple four-card hands, one after the other after the other, and that's really what they're looking for. The only other asterisk that I'd really want to add there, Clark, is you have the tempo if your opponent has to block. If your opponent is blocking all the time, it might be because that's what they're doing with their tempo. Like, they're just totally okay with that. They don't feel like they have a lot of pressure on them. Yeah, but you can have tempo when your opponent's at 25 life. Sure. You don't need to be, like, attacking for 25 to gain tempo. You don't have to attack for lethal to have tempo. I'm not saying lethal, but if Lexi comes at you with, like, a bunch of really cool on hits, or, like, if I'm playing Briar, which isn't in the game anymore, <laughs> but, like, I play, like, two snatches in a turn, you know? I had to have tempo in order to do that because I had to keep a big hand with like some stuff to give go again. Like I had to keep at least three, four cards in hand in order to do that, which means that I either took a bunch of damage to get that tempo or I had the tempo before and I had already forced you to block and now I'm able to keep the cards in hand because you weren't presenting enough pressure. And now you have to block my snatches because the amount of value I get from attacking is such that even if you have 25 life, it doesn't matter, you have to block my cards. That's what tempo means to me. If I don't know, because have to is like a very particular term in my brain. Okay. Like have to is literally have to. Okay, then right? maybe instead of have to, what I mean is you have a very reasonable amount of pressure, right? I'm really giving you a reason to block my cards instead of what you really want to be doing. That's yeah, tempo. Yeah, because even with a life lead, you're like, okay, can I just take 15 damage to try and close out the game? What if I can't? Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting position to be in because even if I have the life lead, I don't, maybe I want to conserve some life and block with maybe one card that doesn't equate as much damage as, as, I'll, as my other three cards. So I'll just throw this in conserve life and still try to close out the game with my remaining cards. And there's yeah. a lot of nuance in that have to, mm -hmm. because that's where like misplays happen, right? If you think you have the tempo, you think you're presenting a problem that your opponent only has one solution for to block. And then your opponent's like, actually, I don't care that much about this. And then they end up like pivoting and like 
actually they have the tempo and they come back with a stronger play, right? Yeah. Like that's where mistakes happen. I think another like core, a good allegory for tempo itself, and this is a little bit of a tangent here, um, but I think it's a very important concept when we're talking about aggro as a whole. Um, but like chess is the best like example of tempo. If I threaten your piece, then you have to respond by like either moving that piece or maybe like capturing mine in response. Like I am proposing the question that you are assumedly going to answer with your next move. I have the tempo, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I like that analogy. I, I think forcing your opponent to make a decision because raw damage doesn't necessarily, like I feel like two aggro decks can trade quote unquote tempo with light dam- life point swings mm-hmm. all day long until like Clark said, you have to because if I don't, it's game over or yeah. it equates another card. Like you said, Fuzzy, like if you're threatening me with a snatch and you have Snapdragon Scalers to give it go again, yeah, then I'm it, like, okay, I have to answer this or I instead of living at like two, I have to deal with another card after that of you know equal pressure. Yeah, can- like letting this go by ends up being way much, way more points of value than you were expecting. Right. So like if a snatch hits, that could represent another four damage. Mm -hmm. So that four damage attack could actually be an eight damage attack unless I block it. Mm -hmm. Doubling the value of it by letting it hit, which is something most decks are not going to allow to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, That's certainly, I would say, an aspect of tempo. I would also say, like you were saying, Joel, that sometimes doesn't matter in certain matchups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't define it by that. I would really define it by the... I am stripping cards out of my opponent's hand and keeping more cards at the start of my turn. Because I would say I even have the tempo if like I'm blocking with one card, playing three, and my opponent is blocking with three, returning one. Like even in that exchange, I would say I am keeping tempo because I am playing more cards and they are blocking with more cards. Yeah, and in order to flip that around, you'd probably have to sacrifice life, right? You might be comfortable sending back one card hands, but it would take work to work back up to a three-card hand. It would take sacrifice or yeah. um, bad draws on your opponent's side. A stumble on on the on the other player's turn, which is then when we start talking about like pivot, which we talked a lot in our control episode. We talked about in control, you're constantly looking for that pivot turn where you've disrupted your opponent so much that they aren't putting that pressure on. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you have your three-card, four-card hand. You've do that big attack, and then you take the tempo back. Right. And aggro decks, going back to our definition, like once you have this tempo, you have three or four card hands every turn, it can be pretty unstoppable. That's the idea, at least. Yeah, those high, high ceilings, big numbers, 20 damage turns, 30 damage turns. I think those damage turns are also oftentimes facilitated by power cards. And so I think this is something I've mentioned in another episode, probably when talking about Leviya. Yeah, you love this word. (laughs) I do love the idea of power cards. They are certain cards in your deck that signal that this turn wants to be one where you want to take damage and return more. Mm -hmm. Um, And in terms of aggro, it's very nice typically because they have more of these power cards and you can like chain them together in some really nasty ways. So some example of these cards, Cashin, High Octane, Blood Rush Bellows, Channel Mount Heroic, Art of War, Rain Razors, 
all of these cards do generally the same thing, which is they take your damage from being your routine 12, 13 a turn, like we were saying, and can put them way over rate. Something I noticed that, um, or while you were reading those off, Clark, is that the first two you mentioned don't buff your turn in any way. Like Cashin just draws you cards, so does High Octane, with a little bit of a mm -hmm. uh, asterisk there giving you extra action points and drawing a card. But those seem a little like underpowered compared to the ones that buff your entire turn. So like, because like Cashin, if you draw two like relatively useless, like God forbid, a, a defense reaction or more non-attacks that don't necessarily push damage, then those can kind of be like just drawing cards and less of a of a power card. Because like when you play Cashin, you kind of want to draw more cards. It's not like you have to kind of bank on the on drawing more attacks to extend your turn based on what you're sacrificing with like your helmet to play this like off of a singular gold token by sacrificing it, things like that. And one thing that makes these cards so powerful, Blood Rush Bellow, Channel Mount Heroic, Rain Razors, is like a lot of the math in Flesh and Blood tends to be linear, you know? Mm -hmm. If I had a five card hand instead of a four card hand, a lot of decks would get an extra three points of value on average, right? So instead of like a 13 damage average, it's more like a 16 damage average, like three pair card plus your action point, right? That's kind of the rate that Flesh and Blood tends to go for, you know? Mm -hmm. Like two cards swing for seven, but three cards are probably swinging for 10. Like that's kind of a lot of the way it goes. But these aggro decks try to get multiplicative value out of their cards. Rain Racers buffs every arrow by two, not just one. So the value of Rain Racers goes up with every arrow, not to mention the actual arrow itself giving you that value when you play it. Channel Heroic gets value for every attack card you play. For every, that's multiplication. Yes. Mm -hmm. I would also say that it's where a lot of aggro players can find a lot of nuance and why I actually really love aggro in Flesh and Blood when compared to some other games. Because in other games, aggro's fairly straightforward. One drop, two drop, three drop. <laughs> yeah, cur curve out high-sided creatures hit face. Not a whole lot going on there. But in Flesh and Blood, there are a lot of micro decisions about when do you take a lot of these big turns and like, do you save your power card? Do you, is there a turn where you can get better value later? How long sure. can you keep the effect up? Do I like play my Blood Rush Bellow or do I pitch stack my Blood Rush Bellow? Very big. And it, actually I've straight up seen games one because somebody said, I am going to pitch this Blood Rush Bellow so I can have it later mm -hmm. on a bigger turn. Yeah, because one thing that I see a lot of, maybe not necessarily new players, but just players in general, they'll they'll see like an Art of War. They'll play it out. They see a second Art of War. Now, in this case, what would you do? Would you like park it or would you send it or pitch it? Totally depends on what I have in my hand. Right. Um, but I will say that this happened recently in a game and I sent it and then I drew a blood rush bellows and I sent that. And, but the inverse can also happen, uh, where you play two blood rush bellows and you tech once for like 10 on one attack. You're like, okay, block six, my turn now. Right. And that's kind of why I think this is where the skill and nuance comes in is when to send these cards and when to be more conservative with them because if you blow through all of your power cards or like 75% of them in the first couple of turns, 
your threat density as an aggro deck still is like okay. Like you can mm-hmm. still get to like 13, 15, whatever, but unlocking these high thresholds of damage again is going to be really tough because aggro decks don't really have a lot of recursion. It's more so the candle that burns twice as hot lasts half as long. Yeah. Uh, I also love that you brought that up about threat density because a big issue that a lot of aggro decks will run into, especially heroes that don't quite have enough power cards and things that make them operate good in the aggro space, is that you'll end up in a situation in the late game where the opponent is just blocking all your damage Mm -hmm. and you can't kill them. And you're thinking to yourself, what the fuck is going on? Why can't, they're at three life, I'm at 12, why can't I win this game? And you're like, oh, I'm going to be smart. I'm not going to attack with this card. I'm going to arsenal it so I can have a bigger turn later. And then you like leak a little bit of damage. And then you go for the big turn again and they're still alive. (laughs) And that happens turn after turn after turn until you get fatigued out or you stumble enough because you only have blue attacks left in your deck. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the other deck just runs you over. That tempo switch happens and you lose the game. That happens to a lot of new players when they're first playing Flesh and Blood. Mm -hmm. And that playing around that looks like pitching your power cards, pitching your reds, making sure that you have enough damage for that late game situation. But I think it's also an inherent thing that is built into aggro in Flesh and Blood, which is aggro is big numbers. And I've <laughs> it is raw damage. It's not exactly disruption or like these big evasive effects like dominate. Mm-hmm. You're not really throwing four dominated attacks at your opponent. Well, probably not any hero, right? Like you have like Bravo who's really good at like one dominated attack where like when he has all the tempo, he can guarantee six damage, which is certainly nice, especially when it's backed by a killer on hit that can wreck your turn. Mm -hmm. Or like Azalea who has dominate and is not quite an aggro deck. Maybe you guys would consider Azalea to be an aggro deck, but it's more about like just landing that one solid hit Probably not swinging for more than 10 or 12 normally, but being able to get a lot out of it, you know? Yeah, but you can't, you don't really see these aggro decks with these 30 damage turns also having a bunch of dominate, overpower, uh, frostbites. Like, that's not really something that works well together. Mm-hmm. If you are dealing massive amounts of damage and also giving massive amounts of disruption on the exact same turn, that is overbearing and completely unbalanced. No deck can really stand up to that. So you either are kind of building your deck to lower your ceiling, not present those massive raw damage numbers, or you're increasing the amount of disruption and what I'm calling evasion. Evasion is another weird idea in Flesh and Blood. It's kind of like dominate, but there's also a little bit like intimidate is kind of yeah. what made me think of when I was writing evasion here. Mm. I think there are counterexamples for what you're talking about too, though. Like I feel like Max Nitro is an aggro deck that also has a considerable amount of overpower. It might be like an exception to the that like makes the rule though, you know? Like it's one thing that makes Mac unique Max unique as an aggro deck. But that that's very much a great example of kind of what I'm getting at here. Is that it's not a consistent part of their game plan. Instead, it is, I have a very small amount of things that do this for me, and I need to save them for the end of the game. And that is, 
it's still not, I would say, a defining element. Like, Dominate is never going to be a defining element of an aggro deck. But it, there will be maybe one or two cards that can provide that effect, and you need to be very cautious about when you use them. And that's where the complexity in aggro comes in. Well, you brought up evasion, which I thought was interesting, because evasion in like something like Magic the Gathering means your creatures are harder to block, like with mm-hmm. flying, making it so that it's like literally flying, you cannot block it, or it says like uh, unblockable or... Menace, it has to be blocked by two or more. Right, menace. Even I would, death touch. Or kinda. protection. Mm-hmm. I Oh yeah, I was going to mention protection as being a, a kind of evasion. Right, so all these things make it harder to block, and I think there's fewer examples, but like you, you already mentioned... Uh, uh, Reinar with Intimidate and your uh, Dominant example. And I think there's a reason why, uh, because these effects are meant to like maybe like close out games more so than be an integral part of Flesh and Blood. Mm-hmm. Because then it takes away from the turn-by-turn decision-making that is so essential to Flesh and Blood. Yeah, so maybe Evasion isn't quite the thing no i really like this point i think i like kind of agree with it and kind of disagree but the the idea that like if you had raw damage huge damage that also carried disruption and door evasion it would be very strong that's the point you're trying to make clark yes absolutely correct (laughs) yeah and it has happened in history like those decks exist they are strong i also agree it sounded like i didn't but i do agree (laughs) (laughs) okay let's keep all of those points in mind as we go into yellow pitch but remember that there are going to be lots of cases in Flesh and Blood in the past, present, and future where those definitions break down a little bit and we see different patterns, different heroes that we might consider to be aggro that do different things, or heroes that we don't consider to be aggro but check a lot of those boxes, maybe. So let's move on to Yellow Pitch. I wanted to have a discussion about the different heroes in Flesh and Blood and where we have the vague ideas of what makes a hero an aggro hero, let's talk about what heroes in practice we actually consider to be on that list by going through a bunch of like fringe cases. I think like Phi is very clearly an aggro hero. I would mm-hmm. not consider him a fringe case, right? Right. He I'm doesn't. not going to argue otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to argue Phi is an aggro. He has a lot of damage. He's really not the best blocker. Like He runs more two blocks than many other heroes comfortably do he has no real disruptive on hits it's just damage 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 he throws so much of it and he gets a lot of value out of like power cards like art of war where his seven attacks all get plus one he has like equipment that like sacrifices itself for short-term value like mask of momentum depending Mm -hmm. on your build uh mask of the pouncing links yeah sorry mask of the (laughs) pound he has a short-term equipment like i know a lot of ninja players i can't let them down like this (laughs) (laughs) He has short-term equipment like Mask of the Pouncing Links, which gets you value on a single turn, but that value is big enough, and you're not having, planning on having many turns anyway. So let me ask you guys a little bit more of an interesting question. Would you consider Katsu a aggro hero? Yes. I think he can be. Katsu, un- so when I think about ninja, I think about lots of really wide attacks, right? Mm-hmm. With like... I think Katsu has a bit more going on in the on-hit realm and also isn't really building around, like, big Art of War attacks. That's true, but he does set up differently and has power turns built around specific cards and when he sees them. Like, when he has Surging Strike and a Whelming Gustrave in his hand and a blue, he's like, 
there's a lot going on here. I probably <laughs> won't block this much because this is a power turn. Yeah. I, I like your guys' points as well. Like, he can be very controlling too. I think the fact that the word combo is literally written as a keyword on these <laughs> cards can be a little, like, disingenuous, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's not quite combo in the TCG sense. Yeah, right. it's not like I get these three cards together and they go infinite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? But it almost Oh, God, could you imagine if Katsu could do that? But like it almost on -hit is that tutor ability. When Dishonor itself, like removing your hero ability as an on-hit effect, that's some pretty killer disruption. Mm -hmm. And it can take your deck to the next level of like power, you know? I mm -hmm. think it was a really cool upgrade when they printed it in Outsiders. Yeah. And Katsu feels like a deck that I really don't see very often, at least in our local meta, yeah. but like feels pretty formidable, at least in the one guy who I plays him. <laughs> I think Katsu is that great example of a hero that if they just got a, either like a little bit more damage or a little bit more disruption mm -hmm. would end up finding that space of too much of both. Mm -hmm. And it would be unhealthy for the game. My next question for you guys is, do you think Bravo is an aggro hero? Fuck no. <laughs> I think he can be aggressively slanted, but not really in like an aggro deck, like okay. true to its word. I think Bravo is a great example of how Flesh and Blood needs Every deck in Flesh and Blood needs the ability to take the tempo and do something with it. Mm -hmm. So like with a Bravo, that's being able to throw a nice dominated attack that you're going to guarantee the crush effect on. Or like throw a pummel on top of a dominated attack. That's what he's doing with his tempo. But he's not designed to do that every single turn. Yeah, I mostly brought this one up because I had uh, Joel had made an interesting point earlier about him. I... Also, pretty firmly in the camp of him not being an aggro hero. Yeah, because like, like he can't. He's not an aggro deck because like, when he does have the tempo and he gets the like, like back to back like three blue one red hand game. Or, oh, uh, it's hand. brutal. Yeah. No, no, not brutal. You don't play the game. You're done yeah. for mm -hmm. for the rest of the game, and until he like feels like you have enough, right? Like, with all of his disruption, like it's just really, really debilitating, but not like consistent enough to be like a true aggro deck in mm -hmm. my opinion. What about Dash, Inventor Extraordinaire? 100% aggro. I want to put a little bit of a uh, honorable mention here because like Dash Inventor Extraordinaire is that one deck that it kind of depends on your matchup whether you're an aggro deck or not. Mm -hmm. Like literally like the main list that Dash players are running was aggro for like 80% of matchups but then they'd pull a psych I'm not doing anything a normal aggro deck does <laughs> I'm just blocking and playing an item not even pushing damage right and then coming back with the uh, pistol package mm -hmm. and the flexibility there is really interesting I think it's one of the only heroes that can decide after they sit down <laughs> whether they're playing aggro <laughs> yeah but it's a little disrespectful to Bolton, but I'll let it go for this one. <laughs> well, that's supposed to be my next example then. Oh, okay. I'd love to hear what you think about Bolton, Joel. Is Bolton an aggro hero? Well, uh, before we move on to Bolton, I, I do really like the Dash example. Okay. And for, for the record, I do think it's aggro. But the fact that Tree Frog Dash exists makes it makes me also think like it could also just be Yeah, a but what was hero. Tree Frog Dash there for? Tree Frog Dash was a response to a meta that was edging Dash out of the meta. And I don't even think that that version of the deck when it was created, even got any big wins. The wins that Dash got during that meta was on the aggro list. Which meta was this? The most recent one. Uh, it was played before that too. Like I, I think it like just farms Guardian really well, 
and some mid-range decks, but against aggro, it can kind of struggle. Yeah, it completely folds. It, it, it felt like a, it felt like OTK Viscerai did. Like, some people just kind of go, no, wait, this deck is good, guys. Trust me. No, it's really good. And then they just don't get results with it. You're talking about, like, OTK Viscerai now? Not, like, yes. when it was the king of the meta? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just clarifying. I am, I'm if talking just... <laughs> recently. Okay, okay. <laughs> I know that, I but the listeners like, might not. It you know? existed in the same... Like, the only reason I heard of Tree Frog Dash is because we have two mechanologist diehards in our friend group, both of whom were trying to figure out how to make Dash work in a meta that seemed very hostile towards her. Yeah, I mean, I've, I saw it rose to popularity in, like, the Starvo meta, because then she could reliably block out Starvo and then, like, in the long game, you know, pistol it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still like it in slower metas. So Bolton. <laughs> yeah, Joel, I'd love to hear your opinion on Bolton. Yeah, so Bolton, I think, is... Actually, all three. Oh, okay. Uh, he's aggro mid-range. <laughs> you think there are only three deck archetypes? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, okay. You're right, you're right. I think it's three, maybe all of them. But I think it can go between like aggro, mid-range, and combo very, very easily. And it has been, because that's the only viable deck that's been around for a while, other than like the fatigue list. What um, makes Bolton an aggro deck? So, And I also kind of want to clarify, there are different ways to build different heroes, you know? Like, if I sit down to play Control Katsu, that's not aggro, right? Yeah. But, like, in the quote-unquote aggro versions of each hero, like, does it really shine? And, like, what is it about it that makes it aggro? Because the answer is a little bit different depending on the hero that we're talking about, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, with Bolton, yeah, so when you switch to the raiding game plan, it's going to look different uh, whether you're playing it against, like, a ranger or, like, a guardian or a brute. Like, against Guardian, you're going to want to, like, block really efficiently and maybe, like, throw little small attacks to build up your soul and then have, like, one turn of, like, 20 damage and then, like, do that maybe one or two two more times until they get into, like, a blocking range against Bolton, which, if you're blocking against Bolton, you probably lost. Like, that's one thing that Bolton does really well is closing out games versus playing against, like, an Assassin or a Ranger where you're just kind of, like, going whenever you have to whenever you're, like, able to. Even if it's four or five cards hands, you're just going to push as much damage as you can. Uh, And you're pretty good at leaking damage because a lot of these characters have three blocks, but they're attack action. So it turns all of my my, uh, attacks in, like, zero for fours, things like that. And then there are decks like Dash, who has a lot of, like, raw damage, but doesn't have any, like, really good on hits. So I have time to set up my perfect combo and just kill them in like one turn or maybe 1.5 turns and I spend like the next two or three turns uh, closing it out. So in that situation, you're blocking a lot more, right? Like if you're against a dash, you would not be considering yourself an aggro deck? Exactly, yeah. And it's all in the same list, which is what's interesting. I don't think he's aggro at all. Like how I... I can see where you there's like the combo version where it's really about playing like two or three Lumina Ascensions on the same turn Mm -hmm. and then swinging as many times as possible with your uh, weapons to gain like 30, 40 damage turn that's also gaining you 10 life. I played against that version Mm -hmm. of Bolton. That's definitely like combo in my mind and I can see how you're kind of playing aggro where you're trying to 
attack a lot more often and your power turns will be around this these Lumina Ascensions. But I still don't really see how you are regularly pumping out 20 plus damage with your four card hands. It's getting easier. Like Dusteldon gave us some neat tools to give us like more sources of, of go again and attack yeah. reactions that buff our attacks to enable our hero mm -hmm. ability. Yeah, so it's getting a, a, uh, a lot easier um, as time goes on. But I think he was... That's why, like, you can't give him super overstated cards because he has on-demand go again on anything he mm -hmm. buffs, and he's getting really interesting tools to buff his entire turn. Yeah, he's gotten more aggressive, but once again, I think he kind of falls into the same place as Bravo for me. Mm -hmm. He's a mid-range deck that can take and keep tempo. Mm -hmm. Again, still not aggro, though. Like, it, that is different to me. Every deck in Flesh and Blood needs to be able to take and keep tempo, needs to be able to push damage once they are once the opponent just goes pass back to you like if you're if you're only playing two cards your deck is not well constructed but i still i i don't put him in the aggro category where that's where he wants to be doing i think i think he wants to block with at least one card every single hand i think he can but even with your argument before like uh not really having any on hits uh kind of coincides with bolton really well cuz like the only on hits you have would be Put more stuff into soul or draw a card. You would say Bolton has built-in evasion, though. For sure. Yeah, he has built-in evasion. But like one of your biggest complaints about Bolton was just what happens when the opponent says no blocks and you can't give go again. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, just the fact that that can happen, I think, completely excludes him from being in the aggro position. Because if I just pass back to you, you throw a three-cost attack and you charge once, and you have no way of giving that go again, I'm just laughing to the bank. Sure, I'll take three damage and come back at you with a four-card hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's also like any deck that I've played against, any deck of yours that I've played against, I've played mm -hmm. combo, where I'm just playing one and that's it. Yeah. Whereas Raiden, it's it's a lot easier because like via the Vanguard. The deck is or, more built around it. Right, exactly. And I'm also prioritizing different cards. Like the yeah. same cards are going to uh, be blocking cards. And the, um, like via the Vanguard, is I, I would consider a power card. In the combo list, I'm never playing it unless it's like towards the end of the unless game. Unless it is the combo turn. No, not even then. Because mm. it, it's it costs one, uh, mm. which is I don't want to be pitching that turn. Uh whereas in Raiden, I'm setting it for that, and then I'm having like uh you know, if I have that on top of like take flight and other uh, you know, like really cheap costed attacks, then it can be a true aggro deck. Mm -hmm. I was just gonna say, I feel like when I the times that I have played Bolton, he can really value a four or five card hand really well. Mm -hmm. Like the power really does kind of shine through where he can capitalize on it as long as you're throwing in some pumps in there. Mm -hmm. And that kind of feels like an aggro deck. Is he pumping out like 15, 16 damage? Kinda. Like if you can still play your entire hand and they're blocking and you count the numbers like after the blocks have been declared as your points towards your like damage presented, then that could kind of be like. 16 plus really easily. You For know? sure. Mm -hmm. So I get what you're saying, Joel, about how I'm kind of feeling like he was designed to be an aggro hero. Yeah, he's getting there. Like, you, you also have awkward hands, but we just got, like, a really sick headpiece that basically changes, like, the entire build again, yeah. even after Dusseldon changed the entire build again. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other interesting heroes that um, you think kind of toe the line between aggro and non-aggro? Clark? <laughs> <laughs> Who? 
Me? <laughs> no, I definitely didn't have something in my section that just got pushed into this one. Oh, my um, <laughs> hey, what's the most iconic aggro deck in Magic the Gathering? Burn. Red deck wins. Burn. Okay. What's our burn deck in Flesh and Blood? It's Kano, guys. Kano is aggro. Isn't kind of like everything burn in Flesh no. and Blood? No. <laughs> Kano is burn. Because Red says one mana for lightning bolt. We say one resource for critical strike. And it's five damage. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Okay, never mind. Fuck this analogy. Kano is an aggro deck. He is all about presenting massive amount of numbers. Mm -hmm. He does best when he has large hands where he's just pitching a lot of blues to play a bunch of cards off the top. Like, I think, okay, the tempo thing doesn't quite work for him. I will admit that. But he also has, like, power cards to play around. Blazing Aether is very much one of these. He wants to park that in Arsenal and wait for his big combo off turn. He wants... He's also looking for uh, what's the one that tutors out things? Listen Lesson in lava. lava. Like he has the big power cards that push his damage on a turn. He has the equipment that you sacrifice for value in Storm Striders that you mentioned with uh, Katsu earlier. Yeah, I think I like ninety percent agree with you, Clark. Yeah, I he's don't, an aggro deck. I don't on principle because before. We didn't have the conversation about Bolton on the pod. We did, and now I'm like, <laughs> you think Kano is an aggro deck, but Bolton isn't. I'm sorry, is Kano winning or losing in the first three or four turns of a game? No. Yes. Yeah, Kano is winning or losing very, very early on into a oh, game. Oh wait, no, no I think sorry. More like five through seven. I, I misunderstood what you were saying. Um, I think Kano is like whether or not you get your combo piece. I think he's like more combo than any other deck in the in the game. I think the, you're right. The biggest But also that's not fun. <laughs> he is a lot he is like the aggro deck that's closer to combo or maybe the combo deck that's closer to aggro, you know? Mm. I feel like the mm -hmm. difference is that like you can look at your four card hand and sometimes it's trash <laughs> where like you're this is not the turn where you're going to deal 20 points of damage, you know. Yeah. You know, I would say 75% of Kano turns you're dealing like 6 you know, mm -hmm. and blocking two, maybe a little bit more with some nuance there, but like maybe nine instead of six, you know, like how can you say it's an aggro deck when you look at Phi, who's like, I'm going to present 15 every turn, 15 every turn. And Kano is doing half that. Because he doesn't have any disruption. He fits all of the little points I set up in my red pitch. Is a lack of disrupt, does a lack of disruption define aggro? It was definitely, like, one of the points that I made in Red Pitch. Yeah, but I guess I wasn't getting too... Four to five card hands are ideal. The, uh, the cards are spec'd more for damage than blocking. It, it's about big numbers, high ceiling. But, Clark, you said yourself that anybody had... Like, every deck wants to have a plan for when they have tempo. Like, just like Bravo can use a five-card hand, like you said. Kano can also use a five-card hand, but that doesn't automatically make him an aggro deck. Using no. your standards. Oh, yeah, but that's not my one argument. I have all these <laughs> other arguments. Well, I have to go one by one because you keep <laughs> going to the list every time I start to argue against you. <laughs> I, I think it's cute. I think it's like on the same level as like everything's kicker and magic. <laughs> but is it really? No, he's a combo deck. <laughs> he is about trying to set up a bunch of the big cards off the top, putting those E-pots out, having the Findalls activation, parking the right card in Arsenal for Stormstrider. 
Oh my god, I ran out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that could happen. Oh no, it happens. <laughs> Parking the right card in Arsenal. Like, he's definitely more of a combo deck, but I think he has these very aggro-y elements, actually. And I think you see it the most in Blitz. Like, in Blitz, he's going to wait for you to be empty-handed, throwing lethal, and then he's going to try to deal 20-plus off the top. You know what might be, like, skewing our definitions here? Hmm. I think Kano might be the only combo deck. He might be. No, I think Nitro Mechanoid a little bit. Uh, aren't those decks kind of fast as well? Because you're boosting and pushing a lot of damage as you collect your hyperdrivers. It's to it really depends. The way that a lot of maxes have been building their like high octane Nitro Mechanoid decks right now, it really is the sooner you get Nitro Mechanoid, <coughs> the faster you win, and the earlier you get it on the field, the okay. more likely you are to win. I have yet in to that have the way. It makes them combo. I have yet to have the privilege of playing against Nitro Mechanoid. I'm excited for the day where I get to like. <laughs> Yeah. Sit down against one of those. I think that's an interesting debate for the combo episode because I disagree <laughs> with that very heavily. <laughs> I, yeah, that's true. We were talking about like Bolton being a combo hero too. Mm -hmm. Even then, it's like, how fast can I do it? And Kano has this way of like, when it's time to put up or shut up. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. And then you're just dead instead yep. of like, okay, now in the next few turns, you're dead. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, I think that really speaks to how unique the design of Flesh and Blood is and how it like really changes like every definition of the other trading card games. Because mm -hmm. aggro, it's like, you're right. Like Kano does fit a lot of those boxes and like we were just and talking. Yet. <laughs> and and yet he's like very different. In the same way that like Exodia and Dash getting all of your pistol items like your plasma purifiers and your contagion engine. Uh plasma induction purifiers chamber. and induction chambers. Yeah, but that doesn't equal game over. It means like the end is near, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean and uh, the game is over, which is interesting. So that's about all I got for yellow pitch. Joel, what do you have for us for blue pitch? <clears throat> I'm glad you asked. So I wanted to talk about um, like how aggro fits in the meta of like TCGs and fab as a whole, right? To me, I think uh, aggro is always the strongest at the beginning of the meta. It has the craziest stat lines. It has like the most flashiest combos. Like, I think most people gravitate towards aggro to experiment. And that's usually where you, like, for instance, I think of when Five first got released. Before his effect was even revealed, they banned Stubbies from Blitz. They were <laughs> like, guys, this is cool, but we really need to address this or we'll have another like Viscerai fiasco on our hands. Yeah, it takes a while in order for us to figure out that control decks are strong, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Like, Oldham took a while for us to, like, ban Winter's Whale. That mm -hmm. card is very crazy strong. Yes. <laughs> Probably the strongest weapon in Flesh and Blood. But, mm -hmm. like, it didn't get banned until a long time. Like, well, multiple sets after Tales of Aria was released. I was going right? to say Duskblade. Duskblade didn't even make it to it's legal an aggro, play. It's an aggro card. It's more obviously broken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I would also say aggro is easiest to evaluate. Yeah. Like any deck that you have, just goldfish 100 games for each deck. Mm -hmm. Which one has the highest average damage? That is the best aggro. In case you guys aren't aware, the term goldfish here is like, imagine you're sitting down to play Flesh and Blood against a goldfish. 
So you is that what it means? Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my. That so, is so stupid. So you're not playing against a person. You're just kind of running through your own lines and kind of imagining like, oh, maybe I can block with this card. Like not actually playing against attacks, but imagine blocking with this card. And what would my hand look like if I do this? You're kind of like running through your deck without it having an actual opponent. That's what gold fishing is. And that's a great way of testing aggro decks because aggro decks want to keep their four or five card hands. Yeah, so they don't you're care. Just, your opponent can do nothing. Gold <laughs> fishing is a actually great practice for aggro players because you just go, ah, what's a good for, how do I get the most damage out of this hand? And then when you go play in real life, you do the same thing. You can't do that with control. Yep. You need an opponent. Exactly. Whereas, you know, I, I feel like aggro in that sense sets up the meta to what it is. Like the rest of the decks have to decide how to deal with it. And it's very polarizing in that way. Like it'll really change. Like for instance, I have a couple pet heroes, obviously, Levi and, and Bolton. So every meta, if they are not at the top, I have to figure out, okay, I can do my thing that my hero is designed to do. But those one or two heroes at the top, I have to figure out how do I interact with those? Do I have to be more defensive against them? Or do I have to tweak my deck in a way where I can, in this specific moment or with this specific tech card, overpower them and kind of take the tempo? Like I have to be very calculated about it because that's how polarizing aggro is in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And one good example of this is uh, Lexi with the, the latest meta. She pretty much changed the playstyle of two, maybe one technically, but one hero that was traditionally an aggro hero, but literally flipped the script and was a fatigue hero uh, for like one season. And then she left uh, that being Briar, like mm-hmm. Briar since her inception was a menace with like her ball lightning, sting of sorcery and channel Mount heroic and, and, you know, channel Mount heroic after that, even then she was like, still had some really good ca- defensive capabilities, but she could not out damage Lexi with her on hits, with her uh, draw power. So they had to use defensive cards and just like completely change the deck to deal with Lexi. Same with old him. He was leaning a lot more aggressively before he left. And then the only time he was winning once Lexi got really good was by trying to fatigue her. You have to play really, really tight and block every single card, every single point of value because the on hits were that impactful that you had to play tight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you pretty much said this already, Joel, but I just want to add like that aggro inherently is going to be able to get in the meta first as new decks are being evaluated. Again, I'm just kind of rehashing what you guys were saying. But like, imagine a new set comes out and you're like, Mm -hmm. ooh, there's a really cool control archetype that's printed and there's a really cool aggro archetype that's printed. And both of them seem like they have the potential to be really strong. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the aggro deck that puts up tournament results first because the control deck has to figure out what the meta looks like before it actually starts to get tuned. It's very important for control decks. Yeah, control is always responding to the aggro deck. Mm-hmm. And because it's very linear how to evaluate aggro decks, there's going to be a clear winner sort of setting the pace. And then all the control decks get to sort of revolve around that deck and mm-hmm. figure out what is my hero's way of dealing with it? What is this hero's way of dealing with it? And then you start building, you know, your triangles and your polyhedrals and all the different (laughs) this percentage against that hero and that win percentage against that hero. And it becomes a whole diagram. Although in Flesh and Blood, that's also a little bit not true. At least right now, we've seen some very stable metas Mm -hmm. where like they've released set after set 
after set and the <laughs> aggro heroes are the same list that's been around for like years. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. It's, also, hey, Dromai, can you get bad pretty soon? I'd appreciate that. <laughs> no, she's always Here's getting better. Tome of Imperial Flame. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of bleeds in, into my next point really beautifully. Uh, and and I, I just want to, I love the fact that Flesh and Blood silos like aggro decks and mm-hmm. makes them unique. Like it's not all vanilla numbers, like similar to Fire or Dash. Like we have characters like, uh, we have characters like Viscerai and uh, Lexi who spread out their damage in very unique ways. And their counterplay or their counter heroes, uh, based on how they interact with the aggro hero, uh, makes the meta like very settled in a way. And then every other deck that wants to specifically target the number one deck has to now contend with the counters to that. And if they don't interact in a perfect triangle, you have an even larger meta share of the top two to three heroes. If you can't beat B and C hero, you're not even going to get close to A like mm-hmm. when you're getting paired up at a tournament. I'm so glad you brought that up, Joel, about like each aggro deck being unique. I kind of used to think that wasn't true. Like, Take a card like Scar for a Scar. Mm-hmm. It's like a great aggro card. It has It's a 0 for 4 go again. That's lots of really good value. It has a break point, and you're going to have lower health anyway because you don't give a shit about blocking. <laughs> so you're trying to just send damage. And I've kind of realized... like now that you brought it up, that there's actually lots of good aggro decks that don't run Scar for a Scar. Mm-hmm. Like, even the generics that just seem like really solid aggro generics, lots of decks have good reasons not to run those generic ones. Like, the, our Mechanologist aggro decks, they want to run as many Mechanologist cards as they can. They cannot afford to run generics. Or Alexi has a focus on arrows. She wants to run those arrows as much as she can. That's the silo design that you're talking about that does permeate um, a lot of aggro decks, yeah. just not like Briar. They did not do a very like they, silo job on yeah. Briar. No, they did not. <laughs> <laughs> or they just like yeah, the silo. Each aggro deck is doing something so uniquely different. I love Viscerai because I feel like every attack I'm technically presenting two breakpoints, a physical and an arcane. Mm-hmm. And the more regularly and efficiently I can do that over the course of a turn, the more damage my opponent is going to leak, and the easier it is for me to win. And you know, that's, it gets harder. Like when I was playing Viscerai in the most recent meta, I was really struggling because I needed to have a sideboard plan to beat Lexi and a sideboard plan to beat Dromai and a sideboard plan to beat Bravo and a sideboard. And it just, I ended up with this big (laughs) clutter of cards and it was diluting the main game plan. And Mm -hmm. it's why I think Viscerai ended up not actually doing well in that meta, even though I think, with Rosetta Thorn, he still had some of the strongest turn-by-turn damage output in the game. For sure. It was because all these other top heroes, he couldn't deal with all of them. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you needed good gem luck to, yeah. to put up results. Yeah, seriously. Or you needed to like go to the Nationals tournament and then wait till everyone's scrubbed out and play in the Calling. Because mm-hmm. then there's less... Like Lexi's theoretically in the larger pool. There's gonna be more rogue heroes. God, I fucking wish. <laughs> <laughs> Played against two fucking Lexis. Nice. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not a science. Yeah. Like there's so much colloquial conversation that sometimes isn't represented in statistics. Yeah, sure. And then sometimes the statistics, if you don't have the right measures, ends up completely misleading you on where things should be. I've watched a lot of uh, video essays and statisticians talk about how to measure video game metas. It, it's very interesting. As a translation, like you can bring whatever 
perfect tech you have for that one hero, but you're going to get dumpstered by everything else. Like you pretty handily. Could. Yeah. Yeah. Or you could only find what you were there to counter and just like wipe the floor clean, right? Mm-hmm. There's always this like after you lose the first game, there's just there's just this purgatory of like oh and one aggro decks that couldn't hack it, and now you have to deal with all these rogue decks that you're horrible into because you weren't teched for them. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely that aspect in in tournament results. Another thing I wanted to talk about is we've already alluded to it a little bit in how mid range and combo decks can sort of masquerade as aggro decks when the time calls for it. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, before old him rotated. I found him to be very aggressively slanting, and that's a, a style of ultim that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you focus on like the big six uh, six cost ten power attacks, like glacial footsteps, thunderquake. You throw some pulverizes in there, but he still wouldn't be an aggressive or an aggro deck. You'd just be like aggro old him. You have to kind of like say aggro and then the name of the hero. Because yeah, <laughs> I have to do this to beat a specific deck. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Yeah, in that sense, aggro really just means aggressive, not yeah. quite the aggro archetype. Mm-hmm. Similar, similarly, in uh, the mid-range category, like Leviah, for instance, I don't think she would be ever considered an aggressive deck. I think Brutes are more uh, mid-rangey, but mm-hmm. Blood Spellers, which you mentioned earlier, Clark, is a power card and lets Brutes uh, compete with aggro decks on like one, one to two turns per game in the sense that I can break my normal numbers of like maybe six damage per turn or 12 into like 18 or even like 24 damage in one turn. Brutes always kind of look like they want to be aggro decks, but with the way that they play their four card hands, they actually kind of don't want that because Mm -hmm. you discard a card at random. You actually always want to be blocking with one card, right? Then pitch, Play the card so that you're guaranteeing the one card in hand getting discarded so you get the exact effect you want. Right. Or, like, if you have multiple non-sixes, you would block with this non-sixes so that you... To get it out of your hand. Exactly, right. Which, even though you're trying to be more aggressive, like, masquerading as an aggro deck, it's actually, like, more mid-ranging in that instance and then continuing with your aggressive turn. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the spectrum, like, combo decks, I think are really interesting to look at because combo decks... They really focus on a few getting together a few pieces all at once and either end the game or put yourself in a winning position to close out the game. But these combo decks also have really high statted cards, so sometimes uh, they can ma- they can be more aggressive than the aggro decks in the sense that like they can just close out games really quickly. Kano, for instance, not an aggro deck by per se, but if he finds all of his pieces really quickly, he can close games out quicker or on the same rate as an aggro deck. Mm-hmm. Combo faster is very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just draw better forehead. <laughs> mm-hmm. Also very much how uh, the current max decks look. Yeah. With, you know, if you can actually play Nitro Mechanoid on turn three, you are feeling godlike. Yeah. Like that game is in the bag because now you're just waiting for Twin Drive Hyper, or Twin Drive High Octane. Oh, Yeah. And, oh, that's and just nasty. multiple, yeah, you're just waiting for that to happen. Yeah, and that's yeah. when you, that's like the combo part, right? Sure. Is once you get that multiple action points of Nitro Mechanoid out. But it's an, it's also super aggressive because you're looking to throw a lot of attacks out in the, every turn by turn. Right, you still have your overly statted 
mechanologist cards to get you to a place where when you do land that nitro mechanoid, the game is over. Mm-hmm. Um, on the topic of like combo being aggro, I think that there's also an aspect of following your opponent's lead. Like, you know, when you're playing Oldham and you have to pitch stack because it's Oldham yep. and mm-hmm. even like aggro decks are like planning for the fatigue strat. Um, when you're playing Kano and you want to assemble your combo, there's a lot higher bar set for like what your combo has to be in order to actually be the combo. Mm-hmm. Like you need to take the time to set out energy potions and suddenly your game plan becomes a lot longer as you assemble the perfect pitch stack and aim to deal 100 damage in a turn <laughs> instead of 30. I wish that was an exaggeration too. <laughs> yeah, so when we look at aggro as a whole and we see like certain decks overperforming or other decks just not quite able to weather the storm like by being defensive um what i find most interesting in tcgs is how they approach banning or buffing other strategies like for instance lexi has been a menace not for a little it's like been like seven or eight months so much so that i've known a lot of people who like have taken breaks myself included from flesh and blood altogether because now I'm forced to either put in reps to a hero I've never played before, uh, it, it being the deck itself that I don't like, or or one of its very nuanced counters, or I can just like kind of take a break because LSS has shown us that they were really well, willing to let us all suffer so that she gets LL'd so that they don't have to design around her anymore uh, when giving support to her other ranger counterparts, Azalea and Riptide. So I'm wondering uh, from you two, when do you think it's appropriate to ban an aggro deck for it being too oppressive? Or is it, and like, how do we have to look at the rest of the meta intrinsically uh, and to determine whether or not the rest of the field has the tools to deal with Lexi or deal with the premier aggro deck? It's funny because Lexi is like definitely strong, but she, when you think of like a long term like balancing situation, like, she's not as strong as other really strong decks have been, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, Lexi is very still very much beatable if she, like, draws a bad hand or whatever. Where, like, if you think of, like, Starvo, Bravo Star of the Show, or mm-hmm. Chain, or, like, Briar before the Errata, like, these are decks that were, like, really, really unbeatable if you weren't playing a top deck. Whereas you can still kind of compete right now with a lot of, like, B-tier heroes. You mm-hmm. can still play them to some success. And I think that's the reason that like LSS is hesitating on like really hitting Lexi, even though like as a player, like Lexi feels like she defines the meta, Mm -hmm. even if that's not even necessarily true. It feels like it's true that Lexi is so strong that you have to be like either playing Lexi or Dromai, which kind of like counters Lexi. Yeah. I think, I think LSS actually handled it perfectly. I think maybe some people who are more competitively minded than me and have gone to like way more callings, PQs and all that, mm-hmm. they would have a much different opinion. But as someone who's just been playing the game at armories and going to the occasional tournament, I think they handled the Lexi situation perfectly. They waited for her to actually reach that point and then they evaluated where she was in Living Legend. People were like, man, she just missed out on Living Legend in this past meta. So what now? You nerf her into the ground and then she never leaves the meta? She's always just hovering on that fringe? No, you have one more little bout, one month and a half, where you still have to deal with her. And 
it's also right at a time that they printed a bunch of new cards. So maybe one of those cards provides an answer that can make the game more interesting. I mean, Droma has been way bigger. So like, I think, I think they handled it exactly right. I think it, I don't know what I would suggest differently, you know, like I'm not necessarily coming with an alternate plan, Yeah, but I do think this meta felt really stale for a lot of people because it has kind of felt the same since Outsiders, right? That was three sets ago when mm -hmm. Lexi really rose to power and Dromai was pretty strong at that time too. And those are the decks that everyone uses to define the meta right now. And none of the other heroes have really like that have come into the game in those last six months have really changed that. And I don't know if that's where LSS wants the game to be like that consistent over time, but. But I, I truly think that Ranger was not intended to be like the premier aggro deck. I think they have way more on hits to be like a really unique mid range mm -hmm. or control deck. And the fact that Lexi is that way is because of Voltaire. Like if they just banned Voltaire and let her find her way as an ice hero again, I think letting people keep like the true Lexi fans play Lexi and not the meta chasers play Lexi would have been more healthy for the game and let people keep their hero around. Because I think every hero, no matter how egregious they are for the meta, there's some group of people who love the hero, love the lore. And I think that's pretty substantial for flesh and blood, especially since, you know, uh, they're increasing the amount of points that events give out. So these heroes are going to be leaving at a more rapid rate. And so if we don't like become more active in the uh, tweaking of the meta, it's just going to look weird. Like with more of these stale metas and like, like bleed most of their uh, player bases away. Well, that's the end of my uh, rant slash uh, Leviacope slash <laughs> Lexi bitching and moaning. Um, with that, you guys want to move to the Arsenal zone? Yeah, let's go to the Arsenal zone. Um, do you want me to start? Yeah, Fuzzy, what yeah. do you got for us? So our Arsenal zone is the part of our podcast where we each shout out a card that we've been thinking about lately for whatever reason, be it good or bad. I'm not sure what time we're releasing this episode, but we're recording it in like the 1st of November, so it's like in the middle of PQ season. So I'm like only going to draft PQs this season. I've been playing a lot of draft. And the last one I went to, I scrubbed out. <laughs> but there's a certain picks in the draft that I really stand by. And <laughs> this is my copium today. <laughs> is I'm telling you that it is pretty nice to pick yellow jumpstart. Oh my word. <laughs> yeah? Yellow jumpstart. It is a... Two for four yellow boost that blocks for three. And if you control a hyper driver, it costs one less to play. Now this card is very mid, but it supports a lot of different ideas that you might be going for in draft. In Max, this could be a one for four red. Max loves one for four reds, you know? You pitch a blue to play this with a single hyper driver out and you can still swing with Banksy after. That's a two card seven and all that jazz. Um, as a two for four yellow, that's also kind of playable. Like if it's in the late game, you could certainly be doing better things with your two for with your resources. But 
Pitching one card to swing for four, like hitting that break point, can be pretty nice. Very serviceable. And it's a yellow you can pitch for late game. Exactly. Yellow's not quite as good as a blue, but this has a little bit more punch than a lot of like blues that exist in the game. Mm -hmm. And you're going to end up having to take a lot of yellows anyway. I think this is a pretty good one. All the two for four yellow boost cards are probably pretty good. I like this one especially in max. You can also kind of play it if you get the hyper drivers and like maybe dash. And in Teclovozen, I would take this card if I needed a block three and there weren't other block threes. <laughs> <laughs> so jumpstart, it's just okay, but it's so good at being just okay that I want to <laughs> shout it out. I'm glad you said that last part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying jumpstart is like God's gift to Bright Lights draft, but it is very serviceable. So it I brought is. two copies of Yellow Jumpstart to sign and give to you guys. Aren't Let's you happy? Go. Yellow <laughs> Yellow Jumpstart. I picked up two copies in my last Bright Lights draft, and I lost for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Just <gonna> say. <laughs> I can't say shit. I scrubbed out two. One for you, and one for you. Thank, Thank you, Fuzzy. You, Fuzzy. So for my card... It's time for me to talk about one of my most hated cards in Flesh and Blood. Oh, oh God. No. This is the one I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> Teclocore. No! Teclocore. I've had a lot of deep soul searching in preparation for this oh. moment. Everybody in this group knows how much I bitch and moan about Teclocore. And that's why I'm going to say Teclocore is fine. Wow. What? Yeah. Is this character no, I, growth? This, this is, is character a, growth Is this for a me. bit? <laughs> no. Look, I really do think that Teclocore is an incredibly strong card that people do not nearly evaluate as much as I think they should. In terms of, talk, like today we're talking about aggro, the ability to start with resources mm -hmm. to play the cards and make it easier, because normally you always think, well, this is my pitch card, and then I can play the other three cards. But now... You could conceivably play everything in your fucking hand. Because as long as you boost once, you use your Teclo Foundry Heart to turn that free yellow that Teclo Core <laughs> gives you into a free blue. That is typically what you're expecting in your hand to play the three cards. Like, it's a really strong actual thing. I think it is very, very powerful to have free resources. Yes. But you don't get to control them. You don't get to pick and choose when you get two free resources. You have to get at the start of your turn. Now, Han, I love you, Han. <laughs> you always try to argue, but it's an item. It's a non-block. I have to, I, I can't play anything after Teclocore. And it's like, yeah, that's not a fucking issue. You just play it at the end of your chain. <laughs> like you just do that instead of your pistol shot. Whoop-de-doo. It's not that big of a downside. <laughs> It can be a downside when you end up with one of them in hand in a really tight late game situation. Mm -hmm. It can be a downside when you pitch it away and then you never actually end up getting any real value off of it being in your deck. Like, I think that it is a fair card. Really, what makes me so frustrated with it is it comboing it with Spark of Genius. Mm -hmm. uh, you mean I get to play a card for free that tutors out the Teclocore. Again, the big downside of Teclocore is it being in your hand, being a non-block. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, no, 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 no. Now you just get put it on the field. You get to completely avoid that downside. And then you get to draw a card to Arsenal. That's actually kind of stupid. But Spark of Genius is a fair card whenever you're trying to get an item of cost one or two. 
then it's completely fair. It's just this tiny little sliver of play when Han throws a throttle and a zipper hit and a zero to 60 at me, and then he goes, Spark a genius, free Teclo core. I'm like, motherfucker, you just threw 15 damage at me, and now you're setting up for a bunch more, like, hyper-powered turns? Go fuck yourself. This card is stupid. But again, when I really properly evaluate it, neither of them are broken cards. Uh -huh. Neither of them really make Dash this insane meta-defining thing because they are balanced. It's also like when every deck has their strong stuff, like that's Dash's strong stuff. And you're talking about like the strongest plays that Dash can make, you know? Yeah. The strongest plays that other heroes can make are a lot stronger than that. Definitely. <laughs> it huh? is fair. <laughs> <laughs> I am in Joel, shock. Joel, take it. Take, take, take the arsenals over. I'm y'all. sorry. I, I can't. I need to go take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in shock. I did not expect that. We So, listeners, we have been seeing this on the notes, like, in and out of episodes for, like, weeks now. <laughs> he keeps saying, like, I think this is the week yeah, where he's I like, talk about Tecmo <laughs> And I thought he was just, I thought we'd have to cut the whole thing out with how many cuss words he had, but that was... Anyways, for the meme, we have to never release this episode. Yeah, <laughs> no! I did such a good job of expressing myself. That was that was beautiful, honestly. It was a piece of art. Yeah. Um. Wow. Okay. Well, I wish I didn't have to follow that up. Um. So for my card, we're releasing this around Thanksgiving time, like in November in general. Um. So I wanted to talk about a card that uh, I fucking hate. And it gives your opponent stuff and you stuff. It's just in the spirit of Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. it's like giving your opponent a smack in the face. And that's Codex of Frailty. Not only does it give you back your favorite card in Graveyard that you blocked with or played with. I love that card. Yeah, it's great. But you also <laughs> get a Frailty. So it's like oh. I give you a gift and I smack you in the face with it. And I have to discard a card. And you have to discard. This price is, man. And he gets a ponder. <laughs> and I get crazy. a ponder. See, we both get something out of it. It's an equal exchange, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm abs uh, really just done with this card. I think the biggest reason why I don't like this card is because Lexi had access to it, which made it really hard to feed Tigger. Um, and the longer the game went, the more options she had to use it with. Now that it's in the hands of... The, the assassins and like the worst rangers like it's i think a better card and more in the line of like what it was intended to be so that's my card for today codex of frailty i hope we see you in a more balanced light and not in the absurd unfatigable lexi monstrosity that you were all right well i think that's <laughs> the end of our episode thank you so much for listening to our ranting bye listeners happy thanksgiving maybe depending on what time this gets released <laughs> okay bye <laughs>